0: Welcome to the Drive Phase podcast, the best podcast for information on issues surrounding sports business in the Caribbean. On the Drive Phase, we have discussions with sport administrators, coaches, athletes, and various stakeholders in the sporting industry and examine their contribution to sports and entrepreneurship. Here's your host, Dalton Myers. Thanks as always, Colleen. In this episode, we look at sport law as a viable profession in the Caribbean. And today, I have on the line Dr. Emir Crone. Emir is a barrister and attorney at law admitted to practice in Ontario, Canada, and Trinidad and Tobago, respectively. He's also a registered trademark agent and an intellectual property agent. He has been involved in several antidoping cases involving, most recently, the Jamaican athlete Brianna Williams versus Jadko. Emir Crone, welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Let's start out, Doc. I'll ask you this one. I'm sure you have an easy answer for it. What made you go into sports law?
1: Uh, well, I mean, people assume that I went into sports law because I like sports, but the truth is, <laughs> I'm not really a sports guy. Um, <clears throat> I got into sports law because, well, the first case I ever did, um, I was called up sort of out of the blue by a a curler who was accused of doping. And not just any curler, but he was a wheelchair curler. So I said, I said, no, it can't be wheelchair curling. How could it, (laughs) how do you even dope in that sport? Um, So I mean, I I found the case to be fascinating. So I took it, I took it on pro bono. It was uh, Jim Armstrong against the World Curling Federation. And he had done, he did the internal appeal by himself and didn't succeed. And then the appeal then lay with Kaz and this was almost 10 years ago now. And trust me when I say I, I couldn't even find Kaz on a map at the time, but I found it fascinating. I said, there's no way a man who's curling, literally his wheelchair is on the ice. He doesn't even move. He just moves his right arm and he throws the rock. That's literally all he does. He's a skip of the of the Canadian team. I said, "There's no way, no way, this man could be doping." It just sounds it just sounds implausible um, from the get go. So that was that was my my entry into the wide world of sports law, I guess. Um, and and for that case, we I we did. Succeed in um, having his ban lowered to six months, and by the time the decision came out, he he was eligible to compete. The ban had expired anyway,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and it it turned out that his wife was suffering from cancer. So the particular cancer pill that she took before she passed away was a round white tablet it looks exactly like an aspirin mm. um, and so he accidentally took one of those pills and that pill is a masking agent for anabolic steroids
0: oh whoa uh, oh, that's interesting well well, let me just ask a follow-up question then I mean but by the way you say you're, you're not a sports person but you, you do dabble in some recreational sport don't you
1: well, I mean, yeah. I mean, squash. Squash is my <laughs> squash is my hobby and passion. And I have a torn meniscus and a torn ACL and a ruptured Achilles thanks to it. But I still love it. <laughs> well,
0: well, 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 I hope you're getting those those sorted out, though. Well,
1: let me yeah. Let- well, all of those are being the Achilles is is almost healed. I toured actually in the Jamaica Championships last year.
0: Oh, really? Well, the Jamaican Championships is, I mean, at the time of this recording, is, is coming up very soon again. So I guess you'll be missing this one. Let me just ask you a follow-up question, though, to all of that. Well, certainly what we want to talk about, young people who want to get into sport law. There are persons who will say that sport law really isn't a profession. You just get, you just do law and then, you know, you can do sport law on, this, on the side. What, what do you have to say to them?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, there is some truth to that. Um, I, I'm not going to suggest that sports law, by itself, uh, for an up-and-coming Caribbean lawyer, that that um, can pay the bills exclusively. It really is um, outside of maybe 20 people in the world. It's tough to find people who have practices exclusively dedicated sports um, disputes then, I'll put it that way. I mean, you can find a lot of in-house work for people who are in broadcasting and and that side of things, the Olympic movement. Um, There are full-time careers on the commercial side of sports, (laughs) but sports disputes outside of London and Lausanne, Switzerland, You'd be hard pressed to find somebody who does it full time for
0: a living. All right. Uh, in, in the Caribbean, though, uh, I think one of the challenges that we 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 I mean, we're not a litigious society, and uh, invariably there there aren't a lot of cases that people are willing to resolve a lot of disputes. Is is that one of the challenges?
1: Well, 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 yes, and 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 i think i think what what would help um, people who are interested in in fashioning a career in sports law is there are a lot of disputes that go unresolved in sport several and, i mean some my cases some of them tend to be high profile um, but that that is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the disputes that arise daily in sports federations throughout the Caribbean. So, what I would tell up and coming um, sports lawyers, is, you need to meet with a local federation, see what their needs are. They, They always need every federation, recreational, any federation needs guidance of a lawyer to help with their constitution, with team selection, and even how to handle this, how to structure a dispute resolution system. Like how to have an arbitration, or how to have a mediation. And those are sort of grassroots um, initiatives that lawyers, up and coming lawyers can take to sort of build their profile in that particular niche area.
0: Mm. Well, what are the challenges then? I remember uh, listening to you talk at a forum at the UE Mona Faculty of Law. I think it was late last year. I can't remember, the, the probably 2018. Uh, one of the advice that you gave to young and upcoming lawyers is that they should apart from what you just said, get involved with member federation in terms of whether it's internship, whether it's just assisting them. Because there are so many areas that the sport federations don't know that they need these assistance in.
1: Right. And 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 this this advice, I mean, it holds true people who wanna do sports law and any other sort of niche area of law, you really need to spend a lot of time doing pro bono work. And, and that is the only way you can build, meaningfully build your reputation and profile, especially in the Caribbean where we have these archaic rules that prohibit lawyers from advertising. God forbid we should modernize the way the legal profession is run, but... Uh, in the absence of being able to advertise, really, your name is your brand. And you need to devote hours to doing pro bono work. Um, like In preparing for this call, I will tell you that I sort of worked out roughly the amount of hours I put in every year. And every year, I, I do at least 140 hours exclusively pro bono sports law work. And if you add it up over past decade, I mean, it it comes up to about 4 million Jamaican dollars in what is potentially lost revenue, but I don't, I don't view it as being that at all. It's something that I think every, every um, up and coming lawyer needs to do. You need to put in the time with pro bono initiatives, give back. And in time that, that does grow into something. And and so that is how I, I encourage lawyers To to get into the field, to help out all of these local leagues, recreational leagues, and so on, and see—I mean, there's an unmet legal need, and people are afraid to retain lawyers. Quite frankly, their their lawyers are seen as an expense. It's a last resort, really. Mm Right. So, um, I encourage pro bono work. In the past month. I've done four pro bono cases.
0: Talking about pro bono cases, if I may, right. one of the first cases that I worked with you, for lack of a better term, is the Travis Michael case. And uh, there, there are two things I learned from that case. One, one, that obviously there are lawyers who are willing to do work pro bono. And secondly, advancing technology, because part of the appeals tribunal, the anti-doping tribunal, what you did is to, you know, use the technology in terms of calling in to represent Travis. And that case didn't go as as probably Travis wanted, but what was some of the experiences from that in moving to other cases that you learned?
1: Travis, is the appeal case in Jamaica I argued that by teleconference, That's right, and in part, that was done to accelerate what I foresaw as an appeal to CAS anyway, mm-hmm. um, and I did that because at the time, the way Jamaica ran anti-doping cases, it was run something like a murder trial, and uh, I'll, use, I'll use that phrase. And it's not run that way now. I give the panel's credit for that. But in those days, these trials would span four days, five days, and it would spread over months at a time. And that's just not the way anti doping cases are run. Anti doping cases, if it takes two days, that's long. And at the time, I remember Travis's case had kind of dragged on for, for a while. <laughs> and. We we just really wanted to bring it to a close so that we
2: would um, take his appeal to CAS, Which we did take his appeal to CAS.
1: But it was it was in part driven by that. But as you say that though, this is where I think the Caribbean needs to embrace technology more because at least half of the building cases I argue are all argued by either teleconference or video conference, and what you'll hear people say is, "Well, you can't, you can't cross-examine someone over a phone, and so on." Okay. And that's not true. It's, it's just a different skill, right? Just because lawyers haven't been taught how to cross-examine someone on a phone, doesn't mean it can't be done. People have broken down and cried during a teleconference cross-examination. Um, so I think the Caribbean needs to embrace technology more because even though it's an island, it's still a headache <laughs> in, in any Caribbean island to get anywhere between 4 and 6 p.m. It's two hours of traffic, pick your island. <laughs> yeah. right? So why, why do we make people meet in one place at one time when it could be done by video conference or it could be done by teleconference? like for team selection disputes there's no reason why that couldn't be argued by teleconference i could see for doping cases maybe you say okay i want to see the person's face fair enough but video conferencing technology they exist and they should help facilitate these cases being heard in a in a much more timely manner generally and like i say uh, the doping tribunals of, of recent especially in jamaica uh, are very good in, in their timeliness and so on. But the way they were run historically, um, it, did need, it did need reform.
0: Yeah, but, but a lot of these has changed over say, probably the last five years, though, uh, Dr. Cronin, because it used to be very long. I mean, even the latest case, which we'll talk about later, the Brianna Williams case, um, is short compared to, you know, a few that we were used to, say, five, six, seven years ago. So I think a lot of that, as you rightly said, has changed.
1: Right. And, and, and I mean, I'll take it back to like my first, like the first case I did, um, the Jim Armstrong case. Mm-hmm. The panel flew in. Um, one was the general counsel of UEFA. He was one of the uh, arbitrators. Um, and he flew in. Uh, there's someone named Dr. Dirk Reiner Martin. Dirk flew in from Germany. And we had Graham Mew from Toronto. And they all did the arbitration in Toronto. But we started at 9.30 a.m. And we finished at 7 p.m. We, went, we spent the entire day. We went through, cross-examined witnesses and so on. We made closing arguments. The case was done. And I, outside of that, I've never, I've never had a case outside of the Caribbean for doping, at least, that required more than a full day. Mm. Uh, and and that just is the way it's done, right? And most of these cases do in fact take place on a weekend because that's just when uh, people tend to be free. Uh, I remember uh, the Jim Armstrong case, uh, it was a Sunday. We argued it on a Sunday. And this is why I say like, the world of sports law is different. It's a different animal than regular civil litigation or the way cases are traditionally run. And that is a problem because the vast majority of people who advise governments in setting up these tribunals or who run the tribunals and so on, they come from a world of civil litigation and criminal litigation. And even the lawyers who argue the tribunal, that's that's the world they know. So I was going to call... Uh, about six months ago where the opposing lawyer he he said there's no way we can have the arbitration uh, next week Sunday and then the arbitrator said next week Sunday that's like eight days away we have have lots of time that's like eight months in the world of sports law and he he had no response he didn't understand that eight days from filing the case to having the arbitration is actually a lot of time in the sports law world any other lawyers that seems insane? They'd be like, "How do you do this? How do we contact witnesses?" It's just the way it's done, and and there needs to be that sort of that sort of training and, and, and mentality. It needs to be brought to the way sports disputes are handled in the Caribbean.
0: Yeah, and and, and then, I remember again in somewhere that you had mentioned that any young and upcoming lawyer who wants to get into well to do sport law. Must recognize that there's a short turnaround before between filing and, and 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 start making the case and the end of the case. So it's a lot of work, uh, whether it's weekend and holidays for some. But it, but it's it's a lot of work that they must be willing to put in um, in a short period of time.
1: Yeah, indeed. In and and like um, with the Brianna Williams case, we had we had the assistance of two uh, great. Uh, local Jamaican attorneys Christy Irving and Xavier Leverage mm-hmm. and they were surprised they were surprised at how we could have the preliminary hearing uh, one day and then the full hearing two weeks later But two weeks is a lot of time you just need to put in the hours and and sort of just, just grind it out put your head down and get it done because I mean if people need to understand the sports law or sports dispute resolution it comes from Olympic disputes, right? And in, in the Olympic Charter, an Olympic dispute has to be resolved within 24 hours. It's mandated from the date of filing to date of decision has to be done within 24 hours. So it, that, that's where sport law comes from. So with that kind of timeline, you can see why compressed time frames are, are normal for
0: us. But the member federations, uh, Dr. Crone, in the Caribbean, are, are not always willing to move at that that, that short pace. Um, I know you have had, I think, the Jason uh, Morgan case. I think was one of them that we were trying to get quickly, and had some issues in terms of just team selection. So some of the some of the disputes, the member federations are not willing to move at the at that pace, are they? Or do you think things are changing?
1: Well, yeah, and 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 you know what? And that that is a problem. It's genuinely a problem because the federation, by doing nothing, they win, right? So if if they have made some sort of team selection error, mistake, bias, whatever, if they just drag their heels until the plane takes off, then they win, and there's no there's no hammer over them to make them to make them um, initiate a dispute or create a panel or anything. So this is where I think the Olympic bodies in the region need to have more of a hammer over the Federation and say, look, um, if you want funding, if you want to be recognized as, you know, as as the sole body governing tennis, boxing, whatever it is, then you need to adopt certain dispute resolution processes, otherwise face being delisted or disciplinary measures by the International Federation, something. But there needs to be more of a hammer over these federations.
0: Yeah, I I hear you, but even for the the NOCs, some of them, the National Olympic Committees, some of them themselves have, you know, issues in in, in trying to have uh, a policy in place for dispute resolutions, especially when it comes on to major games.
1: Well, yeah, and and this is where really, I mean, the NOC, I mean, if the Olympic committees are are dragging their feet, then it perhaps is something at the government level that needs to be, at the ministry level, it needs to be addressed. And and I have suggested in the past, quite frankly, that CARICOM itself could breathe new life um, into that body by, by being a centralized place to hear sports disputes throughout the region. And again, using technology and so on. Um, but there, there, there does need to be a serious discussion as to whether we want to take on sports disputes and handle them in a professional, meaningful way that respects athletes' rights. Because right now, the way it works, especially for team selection, there's absolutely no accountability. Aside from going to the media or maybe seeking some sort of court remedy, which really helps no one. Mm-hmm. But there really is no meaningful process for a team selection dispute in the Caribbean across the country.
0: Yeah, and 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 you get the impression that 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 has become a not has become that's a big issue for athletes who are trying to become professionals. We we had the case of Thema Williams in the gymnast in, in Trinidad and Tobago. Um that's Morgan in Jamaica. We've had quite a few. And uh, it become deferred income or income that athletes will never get, isn't it Dr. Crow?
1: Well, yeah, and quite, and I mean, I was involved in the Timo Williams case, and I will tell you that at the time, the Trinidad and Tobago Olympic Committee, their dispute resolution clause said that if the federation deems a dispute to be unresolved, the federation referred to the Olympic Committee. But there was no corresponding provision that allowed an athlete to bring it to to the oh. Olympic Committee, and it just seemed like such a bizarre clause. And so, I mean, I banged on the TTLC's door hard enough that now their constitution has been amended to allow any athlete to bring a complaint directly to the Trenton Big Olympic Committee. Uh, and we, our chambers in Trinidad, we've done about there's been about 10 of them, we've done eight of them, and so there is at least a glimmer of hope. In that respect, but it's still a slow sort of it's a steep learning curve for federations to to, to to sort of realize that they have to own up to this process and, and they have to show up and they have to make arguments. So I am I am an exclusively an athlete side lawyer, and so my bias will always be towards the athlete, but. The Caribbean as a whole has a big problem with how sports are handled and they are handled almost entirely towards the sporting body benefit,
2: mm.
1: either through lack of inertia or ignorance or however it wants to be played, but uh, there is a big problem that needs to be addressed.
0: Which I guess is where you're saying that a lot of upcoming young sports lawyers, for lack of a better term, may look into these and see where they can make a contribution in, in helping either member associations or athletes.
1: Indeed, and, and one of the best ways they can help them is to help draft a dispute resolution system. So, aside from putting in a dispute resolution clause in these federations, constitutions, or you know, team selection policies, they could actually help design the entire system. And arbitration is nothing fancy. It could be one person, preferably three, and, and they hear the dispute and they render a decision impartially. I mean, it, it, it's literally that simple. And so they can help with, with ensuring that the natural justice rights of everyone in that process is respected. And, and that is a concern because i've seen I've been part of processes where federations have tried to initiate their own um, dispute resolution mechanism, but it's sort of been woefully inadequate uh, one case in trinidad nikisha blake uh, badminton case mm-hmm. they contacted her on friday and they said your hearing is tomorrow but we won't tell you the evidence against you you have to show up and go at the here. And we're like, that, that smacks of unfairness. You can't design a system that way. So part of upcoming lawyers' roles would be to design systems that respect the natural justice rights of athletes. And they could even, mm-hmm. like I say, help draft it. They could even be the arbitrators. They could, there are many rules that they could take um, in that process.
0: Where do we go with your suggestion of setting up a a dispute port resolution system in the Caribbean? I know this was a big part of of what you've been pushing. Where do you think we are as a region, and, and is this something you see as a reality very soon?
1: Well, here's how I see it being structured. I would like to see a system in place where there's one level of appeal that either internal to the Federation, which I never like because it just seemed unfair to begin with, yeah. but at least one level of appeal, either within the Federation or within the National Olympic Committee, with then a further right of appeal to a CARICOM level, a Caribbean level appeal body, for everything except um, doping, because doping, the water code mandates that all appeals end up at CAS, right. But anything outside of that, it can be subject to, like I say, a first level of appeal, like at the federation level, at the Olympic committee level, with a further right of appeal to CARICOM. And and that, that I think, is a process that could work for team selection, disciplinary matters are coming up now, harassment matters, all of these mm-hmm. things in the sports context are things that can be
0: Ah, oh, interesting. Dr. Crowell, I have you on the phone, and I think I want to ask you on some topical issues that are coming up. The yeah. Some athletes in Great Britain have decided to take their Olympic Association uh, to court, I'm going to use that loosely, regarding the IOC Rule 40. This is re-advertisement. Is this something you think is going to trickle into the rest of the Caribbean, and, and, and will you be on any of these cases? Uh, sorry, yes, you said the IOC rules for Rule forty, sorry, on advertising.
1: Oh the advertising issue, yes. Um and, and so th- that is something that that I think is is an important point because and it does go back to my my first comment that most of the full time roles in sports law are on the broadcasting commercial side. Right. And those bodies from the IOC down have benefited immensely from that exclusivity that they've enjoyed off of athletes' backs. And I gave a talk in Jamaica two years ago about that. And I said that that rule disproportionately affects athletes in particular from Jamaica, because it prevents Jamaican athletes, like I say, disproportionately are affected because it affects their ability to earn additional sponsorships and revenues, and so on, and it is something. It is a restriction that benefits athletes from the developed world, mm. and and so it is something that needs to be tackled. If the IOC or any of these bodies, quite frankly, um, purport to uphold human rights, they cannot. They cannot uphold a right that inherently restricts my ability to profit off of my own God-given talent.
0: Well well the IOC though says that the reason they do this is so that they can benefit and then spread the money to the member associations who are supposed to help with the development of, of athletes.
1: Yeah, well well that's nice that the IOC says that and unfortunately though the IOC is a body that is I will put it politely, which is unusual for me, but um it is a body that's is very Eurocentric in who, whose interest they favor and who benefits from that. So, that may well be nice, but I think at the end of the day, between allowing the IOC to decide what's best for me as an athlete or me as an athlete and my own people to decide, I would prefer me as the athlete and my own people decide rather than somebody governed by, you know, 60, 70-year-old white men, former athletes from 50 years ago.
0: Yeah, Is that then a similar scenario, certainly the advertising part, as what we're seeing in the NCAA system, where athletes are challenging the authorities on their right to their own intellectual property?
1: Right, exactly. And that, that is um, the best analogy. That is exactly all of these college athletes, uh, they're sort of just used and, and, and spread out without their ability to in turn generate at least some income or even residual income from their likeness and so on. And so that that is a, a very a very good, it's probably a direct analogy, really. Mm.
0: All right, let me just take off a few more on topical issues. I'm going to go to CAS. Uh, some persons have argued that CAS is, is really an arbitration body and, and there should be uh, another appellate body for for athletes—is uh, this something that you think, or we should just stop at CAS?
1: Well, my view on—I know some people view CAS as "quote unquote" the gold standard. Um, I have to say, I'm—I don't view CAS as being the gold standard in any way, shape, or form. Um, I I find CAS to be prohibitive, unless um, unless I, I'm not sure if listeners know, but. A CAS appeal costs a minimum of ten thousand Swiss francs yeah. for one arbitrator, right, and twenty-five thousand for three arbitrators. So I don't know of any athlete from the developing world that can afford those kinds of fees, let alone fly to Switzerland, retain counsel, etc. So I do not view CAS even being a viable dispute resolution mechanism for most athletes in the world, and so. When people talk about CAS and natural justice rights of CAS and so on, I, I disagree entirely. Um, a, a fair amount of my cases are with the Sport Dispute Resolution Center of Canada, and all but one of my doping cases, we've all argued it through video conferencing, through teleconferencing. We have an amazing online portal. You upload documents. You get a reminder to submit documents, etc. And the cost is minimal to the parties. Everybody sits at their computers. You draft things. at due 5 p.m. Eastern time. That I think is is a model that could be adopted widely outside of CAS mm-hmm. and has great benefits for athletes. So I I I don't view CAS as even being even being uh, a good model, if I'm being quite frank. and I've done about 12 cases in the so I wish I could speak more. I'll give them the way some theorists speak of them,
0: but I, I can't. All right, let's talk about one of your, your best friends, the uh, Jamaica Anti-Doping Commission. Um, um, we, we we have disagreed on, 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 on one aspect of JADCO. Which is uh what we considered open door policy when it comes down to hearing, well disciplinary hearing versus closed door, which they have gone now, but I see you you were successful with with a recent case which which was closed door, so is it that it's it's not really it doesn't really matter whether it's open or closed door?
1: uh well, I will say that so for the Brianna Williams case we didn't make a motion for it to be an open hearing because she was a minor so if she wasn't a minor we would have made a motion that the hearing in fact be held um, in public and so that that really was the driving force behind that i mean my personal view as you know is all of these hearings should be open but the rights of the child have to prevail. So I have to acknowledge that even in that case, I couldn't ask for it in good conscience to be an, uh, an open hearing. And, and I mean, my view has always been that open hearings for adults, they have a very important um, function when it comes to, to, to the public awareness and interest and public accountability. For the athlete and Jadko, I mean both sides. There's there's value to the open hearing, in my view, for both of them to be held accountable. Because I mean, Jadko, their job is to enforce what they believe is a doping violation, and the athlete's job, um, if they have a, a defense, is to mm-hmm. is to defend against that.
0: All right. The uh, one of your colleagues, Dr. Jason Hines, who is a sports lawyer out of Barbados, now, He wrote a recent piece called Doping, the Brianna Williams case in Jamaica, where he tore into the Jamaica Anti-Doping Commission's disciplinary panel. And at one point, he noted that one concern is that the panel's decision, I'm quoting here, was seemingly heavily swayed by public opinion. And he went on to say, indeed, at the time of the hearing, counsel for the athlete, as well as her coach, Otto Bolan, had taken to the media to plea for leniency. Uh, And and there's more to that. I don't want to just go through all of that. Do do you think, it's a tricky question for you, in light of what we have seen with cases like the Jadko versus Kenneth Edwards and a few others, that this was really a slap on the wrist compared to other cases?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, it's no surprise that my answer that would be no. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, she didn't; re- she did not receive a slap on the wrist.
0: Right.
1: She did receive a sanction. The sanction was a
0: reprimand, and well, that I mean, could be considered a slap, though, Doctor Crown, on the wrist.
1: Well, you see, but, but this is it, And This this in part goes to the my earlier point about her being a minor, right? right? And that that does play even under the Water Code there's different sort of evidential requirements i'll say when we're dealing with a minor as to normally you have to prove how the substance got into your body and so on not for a minor so there are exceptions in the code made for minors and so that we submitted that that should play a, a, a big role and we believe that it did and and it it's not at odds with the jurisprudence and I read Dr. Haines's piece Um, it's not at odds with the jurisprudence that a minor would in fact receive a sanction towards quote unquote the lighter side of it so Mm -hmm. it's not that unusual and I will say that that it's one thing um, to be a writer sort of removed from a situation but you know when you're in the trenches fighting the war I guess I guess The way we would write our books would be differently then. That, you know, I'm taking the blows for a month as opposed to if you wrote about it from a distance, I guess it would have a different appearance. So I understand the point he's made, but I respectfully disagree with them. Right. There's a a different take when you're an advocate versus um, someone writing about this thing.
0: Okay. All right. So, a few other questions. I'm just going to bring it back home to the young sport lawyer. So, I know that you started your own clinic, and is this one of your ways of contributing to developing young lawyers?
1: Uh, yes, and and uh, I, I put it out there that uh, I, I welcome any expressions of interest from young lawyers throughout the region. That's how we got in touch with, uh, like I say, Xavier Leverage and Christy Irving. Uh-huh. for the Brianna Williams case, they had reached out. We said we're more than happy to have you involved. And quite frankly, even uh, Canadian cases that I'm doing, um, the panel, the arbitral body, will let them observe as a representative. Okay. And so young lawyers are more than happy to reach out and, and they can they can watch a case, listen to a case, help me with submissions. I'm more than happy to, to lend my expertise that way. I'm also happy to give talks to, to any island, to any school, about a career in sports law. Like I say, how to set up these tribunals, the best way mm-hmm. to deal with cases and to, and, and to argue these things. I'm happy to do that throughout the region to anyone who would listen
0: Awesome. That, that's great. And I'm sure any of our, our listeners, if you're hearing this, you're hearing it first. Uh, Dr. Cron is willing. And, and trust me, I know this firsthand that he's, he means what he's saying, that he's willing to assist any young lawyer out there who wants to. Kind of learn about the field and you know look at this as a as a career path. Speaking about career path, though, Doctor Crohn, what 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 is a career path certainly for a, a young lawyer, sport lawyer?
1: Well, I mean, the career path like within the region. What I would say to any um, lawyer thinking of this career path is, you need sort of the main practice and the main practice that keeps the lights on. All right. Uh, so, I mean, if you think of sports law like a casino, there's people who play the slot machines, they keep the lights on. Sports law is like the, the, the big wheels that come in on the plane and, and get the big fancy suites. So you need to have the stable practice, criminal law, family law, whatever it is, that core practice, and then also be known for sort of your pro bono, your extra work in sports law, in even entertainment, you know, related fields um, like that. And, and th- that I think over time builds your reputation. If you think about it, if you start off with a particular league of sports in 10 years, 20 years, then be, you're that person in that sport for that island.
0: All right. The last question I probably want to ask: You know, you have been listed in the Who's Who legal names of sport lawyers, and you're you're the first in the Caribbean. Uh, what does that mean for you? And uh, the the part two of that is: What do you see as the future of sport law in the Caribbean? Uh,
1: well, I mean, you know, being named as uh, quote unquote one of the world's leading sport lawyers, um, I say that with a bit of a sigh, but I mean <laughs> it. it it is it is a great honor. Um, it is unusual for someone from not from a big firm to receive a nomination. So I'm grateful for that. But like I say, it's, it's ten years of <laughs> of about 1500 hours of unseen, unpaid work that got there. Um, so so what what that leads me to to conclude at least is that there is expertise in the Caribbean, and it's not just law. Right across the board, wrongly, we look to the U.S. and the U.K. for legal expertise in particular. And I think that is wrong to do now. And if anything, my little award should at least show up and coming lawyers that there is expertise in the region. You just have to know to put your head down and just do the work and then in time whatever accolades will come will come but the expertise is within the region Mm. and lawyers and even clients inside the region and recognize that there's expertise and there's also people who understand your culture then and I, i will close with the brianna williams case because other lawyers from other countries um, had approached to represent Brianna. And there's this something about a Caribbean person arguing a case in the Caribbean that's different than somebody who would fly in from Europe or the US to argue a case. So it's very important that we, as Caribbean people, we take hold of our own sort of regional expertise and exploit ourselves for a change.
0: Awesome stuff. I, I know I said that was the last question, but I just wanted to find out though, Dr. Crown, how are things going on between you and the, the JADCO? I think you guys have a, a dispute to resolve.
1: I haven't heard anything um, with respect to the dispute. And look, if I were to just say something about JADCO, I know it does seem that me and JADCO are at love ahead um, at times. But they do, they do play an important role in ensuring the integrity of the sport. And, you know, I, I, I battle anti-doping authorities for a living, as it were. <laughs> so, at times, we'll come to loggerheads, but I haven't heard anything of any further dispute between us. <laughs>
0: okay, then, Dr. No, no, Emery Cron, thank you very much for for joining us on this episode. I, I really appreciate it. Well,
1: thanks for having me. It's so
0: Awesome, that's Dr. Emir Krohn, and he's also on Twitter at Sports Laws. That's S P O R T S L A W S. Thanks again, Doctor Crohn. Thank you. It's always great chatting with Emir Krohn. On behalf of producer Rashika Grant, engineer Andre Sawyers, and our program advisor, Marsha Boyce, thanks for joining us on this episode of The Drive Phase. Remember to always check out our website, thedrivephase.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, so you'll never miss an episode. Remember, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or any podcast you use. Go tell a friend about the show so they too can spread the word. And also feel free to send feedback, comments, or questions to thedrivephase at gmail.com. Or look us up on Twitter and Facebook at The drive Phase. Remember our hashtag, TDP. Until next time. See you then.